London, 1942. The Second World War has been raging across Europe for nearly two and a half years. England is still reeling from the Blitz, the systematic bombing by the Germans that has devastated towns and cities across the country. The death toll is high, and thousands of people have been injured. Many have lost loved ones, and a large number of buildings have been reduced to gaping holes and piles of rubble. Listening crews are posted to pick up on the drone of planes coming from Germany. When the bombs hit, Londoners take refuge in cellars, Anderson shelters, and even the London Underground tube stations. To prevent the German Air Force from being able to target densely populated areas at night, blackouts are being enforced in London. The street lamps are not lit. Shops have an inner door to stop any light escaping as customers enter and leave. Windows are painted black or shuttered, and the government have provided every home with blackout material. There are heavy fines for those who don't comply. Even cigarettes are forbidden outside at night, in case the glowing ends may give the German bombers a target. But while the darkness keeps Londoners safe from the enemy, it has also given rise to an internal threat. Crime in the city is up nearly 50%. The blackout conditions have turned London into the perfect hunting ground for criminals. They're able to act with impunity as the darkness makes it near impossible for witnesses to identify them. Incidents of murder, rape, robbery and looting are rampant. Some robbers even blow safes open as the bombs drop, camouflaging their illegal activities in the ensuing noise and chaos. But one criminal who lurks in the shadows stands out from the rest. A monster, the likes of which has not been seen since Jack the Ripper stalked Whitechapel. And he's just about to strike. It's after 10 o'clock on Sunday the 8th of February 1942. Evelyn Hamilton feels her way carefully along the pavement, scared of tripping in the pitch black. She rummages blindly in her handbag for her torch. Flicking it on, she uses a small pool of light it emits to navigate the pavement. Hamilton has just dropped her luggage at her boarding house in Marylebone. Her landlady, Catherine Jones, suggested Lion's Corner House at Marble Arch for an evening meal, as it's open 24 hours. Hamilton has recently lost her job as a chemist's assistant in rural Hornchurch due to wartime cutbacks. She's made the 15-mile train journey to London for a one-night stopover. Tomorrow, she's travelling to Lincolnshire to take up a new position as the manager of a pharmacy in Grimsby. She is, by all accounts, charming and intelligent, but described as reserved and lacking confidence in social settings. Hamilton is never married and immerses herself in her work. Perhaps, like many women between the wars, she struggled to find her husband. She wraps her scarf a little tighter around her neck to keep out the chill. Her dark hair is swept back from her face, her eyes large and soulful. She holds on tightly to her handbag, which contains her savings, ready for a new beginning. Maybe this new job will bring her security and a new circle of friends. But Evelyn Hamilton will never make it to her new job in Grimsby. Her life will end here, in a street-level public bomb shelter 
in the pitch darkness. The first victim of a sadistic predator known as the Blackout Ripper. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The next morning, electrician Harold Batchelor is making his way to work. As he walks past a bomb shelter in Montague Place, Marylebone, he notices a torch lying by the entrance, the sort that people carry around in the blackout to find their way through the dark streets. Curious, he peers into the shadows and sees a sight that will never leave him. A woman's body lies on the dusty ground, face up, eyes open. A nearby policeman hears his shouts, and very soon senior officers arrive. Chief Superintendent Frederick Cheryl of Scotland Yard stands at the entrance to the brick-built shelter surveying the crime scene. He wears a long black top coat and a bowler hat over his silver, swept-back hair. He's in his later years. Many of the younger officers are off fighting in the war, but his knowledge and experience are invaluable. The woman is lying on her back. Her skirt is hitched above her hips, her legs spread, showing her stockings and underwear. 
It's almost as if she's been displayed to anyone walking past. Scuff marks on her shoes and broken mortar scattered around the scene indicate that the woman struggled fiercely with her attacker. Cheryl looks closer. There doesn't appear to be any sexual interference, although her top is torn, exposing one of her breasts. There is a one-inch gash above her left eyebrow. A silk scarf is wound around her mouth and neck like a gag. At first glance, it looks like a robbery gone wrong. Her handbag is missing, but the contents lie strewn around her, including a matchbox and a face powder compact. After a quick search, one of the officers finds the handbag on nearby Wyndham Street. It's empty. The officers discuss whether the woman might have been attacked in the shelter or maybe thrown in there afterwards. They're not sure. It's possible she was a sex worker. They often carry torches or whistles to signal to clients that they're available, then service the men in the shelters and dark doorways of the streets. Is that why her bag had been raided? To take her earnings? But who is she? There's nothing at the scene to identify her. At first glance, there's nothing that might unmask her killer either. But Superintendent Cheryl has been head of the fingerprint department at Scotland Yard for the last four years. He's a pioneer in the field and has already played an important part in the evolution of fingerprint forensics, a relatively new science for the force. Due to his efforts, the Met's Bureau of Records already has the prints of thousands of criminals. If they can find one here, maybe they'll be able to match it to one they have on file and catch the perpetrator. Initially, however, Cheryl can't see any marks. It was a cold night, maybe the killer wore gloves. He sends the woman's possessions to his office for further examination. Cheryl always carries with him a magnifying glass. He uses this now to examine the woman's body more closely. There are numerous tiny scratches and cuts on her breast. He looks with interest at the dark purple marks on the woman's throat, which appear to have been made by the fingers of the killer. Cheryl later says, Under a powerful light and with the aid of my hand lens, I made a close and minute examination of the marks in the hope that the murderer might have left some trace of his fingers, no matter how small that would assist in deciding whose hands had choked the life out of this poor victim. The marks are darker on the right-hand side. This can mean only one thing. The killer must be left-handed. Police begin a door-to-door investigation with a photograph of the woman to see if anyone can identify her. It takes over 24 hours before someone finally puts a name to the face. A landlady named Catherine Jones identifies the victim as her tenant, Evelyn Margaret Hamilton. Superintendent Cheryl finds out that Hamilton wasn't a sex worker, but a pharmacist about to start a new job. He also discovers from inquiries at her previous place of work that she had taken 80 pounds of savings with her to London, the equivalent of four months' wages, to open a new bank account in Grimsby. But no money was found in her luggage. It looks like it was a robbery after all. But if Cheryl thinks it's going to be an easy crime to solve, then he's mistaken. There's a mysterious killer out there in the darkness, and he's already looking for his next victim. 
It's Monday night, February the 9th, and Evelyn Oatley is out looking for clients. An aspiring actress, she's recently left her husband and headed to London. But when her dream of becoming a West End star didn't pan out, she turned to sex work to make ends meet. Oatley's is not an unusual case in wartime London. Many people have lost their homes and are now destitute. Food is rationed and people are going without the basics. But with the influx of 4,000 US soldiers in 1942, a new means of making money presented itself for London's women, entertaining lonely servicemen looking for a good time. Soldiers desperate to enjoy their last few hours before they face combat. As she stands on Shaftesbury Avenue, Oatley runs her fingers through her curly blonde hair and puts rouge on her lips. A man approaches her. He's younger than her usual clients, but he's attractive and charming. Oatley lets her guard down. When she asks him about his sexual preferences, he says simply, I like blondes. She agrees to take him to her flat. They walk through the scarred streets together, past the intrepid Fox pub, to Oatley's one-bedroom apartment at 153 Wardour Street. It's not long before midnight when Oatley enters the stairwell to her property and greets another tenant, Ivy Poole. 20 minutes later, Poole hears music from the wireless and laughter coming from Oatley's room. It sounds convivial enough, but little does Poole know that soon the mood will change. Things will turn unspeakably violent and the man will disappear, leaving a scene of horror in his wake. On the morning of the 10th of February, Superintendent Cheryl is called to Evelyn Oatley's flat. It appears there has been another murder. Upon arriving, Cheryl is greeted by a hysterical Ivy Poole, who tells him that she had let the meter reader into Oatley's room at 8.30am, only to be confronted by a sight straight out of a nightmare. Cheryl enters the flat. In all his years at Scotland Yard, he has never witnessed a more horrific crime scene. Oatley lies on her back across her single bed. Her head hangs over the edge, blood pooling on the floor. A pair of stockings have been tied around her neck, and there is a six-inch cut to her throat, which has severed her carotid artery. She is naked, apart from her nightdress that has been pushed up over her chest. It appears that as Oatley lay dying, a murderer abused and tortured her with implements that now lie on the mattress next to her. Blood-smeared curling tongs and a tin opener. It's as though they've been left deliberately on display. Composing himself, Cheryl begins looking around for clues. Bottles and cosmetics sit on a dressing table undisturbed. To the right of the bed is a table on which stands a large wireless radio and a vase of flowers. Tea towels and stockings hang drying at the end of the bed. All signs of a life lived that has now been brutally extinguished. There is a couch in the room which has a woman's handbag on it. The contents have been emptied out. All that remains inside is a piece of makeup mirror. Superintendent Cheryl's unique and expert skills at a time of limited forensic know-how uncover the first clue to the killer. 
there is a print on the mirror. This is Cheryl's genius, the ability to identify single fingerprints at the scene of a crime long before fine silver powder and a brush could lift them for further analysis. Cheryl later writes, Upon that bit of looking glass, into which the dead woman had doubtless looked a hundred times in the process of beautifying herself, I detected what I knew to be a thumbprint. He deduces it is from the left hand, made by the killer when he used the mirror as an improvised weapon to attack the woman. He also discovers the faint impressions of fingers from a left hand on the tin opener. But he's disappointed that he can find no corresponding prints in Scotland Yard's records. With very little to go on, Howard Cheryl and the team going to find the killer before he strikes again. In desperation, the police come up with two new strategies. Firstly, women officers in ordinary clothes, always under the alert and watchful eye of yardmen, stroll the streets at night in the hope the killer will approach them. Cheryl says in his autobiography, nobody knew when or where the killer would strike again. That he would strike again seemed certain, for the lust of killing appeared to have seized him in a merciless grip. Unfortunately, the undercover sting doesn't pay off. Luckily, their second strategy will prove to be far more successful. Officers turn to the newspapers in the hope that the story might encourage witnesses to come forward. So far, the press coverage of the murders has been limited. With short supply of paper, reporters have focused mainly on the war. But now it appears there is a killer on a spree in the capital. The story takes the headlines. Obvious parallels are drawn to another killer, one that stalked the streets of London nearly 60 years previously in Victorian England, Jack the Ripper. So the press dubbed this new sadistic murderer the Blackout Ripper. When the story is released, panic is sparked amongst London residents. Women are terrified of leaving their homes. Sex workers become reluctant to offer services to anyone other than regular clients. However, thanks to the press coverage, witnesses start to come forward. It appears that in his desire to satiate his twisted needs, the Blackout Ripper has begun to slip up. Behind every missing person is a story to be told. Look closely at the details and you may just find the answers. Find the answers, find the truth. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases, tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. From the tragedies of Amelia Earhart and Charles Lindbergh Jr. to the mysterious circumstances surrounding Tierra Williams and the Iguala mass kidnapping, each week on Disappearances, we're spotlighting the stories you thought you knew and the ones you'll be shocked to discover. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The truth is out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Two days after the story is released, a 25-year-old sex worker called Catherine Mulcahy is attacked. She tells Detective Cheryl that she picked up a client on Regent Street who gave her an upfront fee of two pounds. 
Tearfully, Mulcahy describes how once she undressed, the client pinned her to the bed, put his hands around her throat, and tried to strangle her. Luckily, she had left her boots on and was able to kick him hard enough to temporarily incapacitate him. She ran, screaming to the neighbours that she'd been attacked. The man followed her, claimed he had had too much to drink, and gave her a further eight pounds before hurriedly leaving. She thinks he might have been the blackout ripper. What Mulcahy shows Cheryl next is the investigation's biggest clue yet. In his rush to get away, the attacker left something behind. A Royal Air Force webbing belt. Could their killer, in fact, be an airman? The police are getting closer, but tragically they're not moving fast enough. Just days after the investigators received their first big break, two more women are found dead. On February the 13th, the body of 43-year-old Margaret Lowe is discovered. Margaret, a widow, had recently turned to sex work to pay her daughter's boarding school fees. When she hadn't been seen in a few days, police were called to break down the door. When Superintendent Cheryl arrives at the scene, he's appalled by the savagery inflicted on Margaret's body. There's a deep, gaping wound, ten inches in length, to the right side of her groin. Her abdomen has been ripped open, exposing her internal organs. A large serrated bread knife protrudes from a wound, and a candle has been inserted into her body. As with Oatley, the killer has left the tools of destruction on show. A vegetable knife, a table knife, a poker, and a razor lie on or nearby the body. Cheryl uses his magnifying glass to examine items on the mantelpiece. He finds fingerprints on a glass tumbler and a half-drunk bottle of Hamilton's oatmeal stout. He also finds prints on the base of a candlestick. Right hand, he says. One of his officers looks confused. Aren't they looking for a left-handed man? But then Cheryl explains that the killer would have held the base of the candlestick with his right hand to pull the candle out with his dominant hand, the left one. Cheryl concludes that with the similarity of the mode of killing and the nature of the injuries inflicted, that it appears likely, in fact almost certain, that the murders of Evelyn Oatley and Margaret Lowe are the work of the same man. It is at this point that he also begins to suspect that the murderer might be responsible for Evelyn Hamilton's murder at the air raid shelter. Tragically, on the very same day Lowe's body is discovered, another woman, Doris Juanet, is found dead. She, just like the Ripper's other victims, has been beaten, strangled, and horribly mutilated. In the face of these horrendous crimes, public terror, and very few leads, the police are at a loss. But another witness is about to come forward with a clue that will blow the investigation wide open. On Friday the 13th, the same day that the bodies of Lowe and Jouanet are discovered, another woman is attacked by the blackout ripper. Mary Haywood, a pretty 32-year-old, is approached by a handsome airman at the London Trocadero in Piccadilly. He asks her for sex. She's offended and tells him that she's not that kind of woman. He offers her a huge amount of money, £30, pounds, to sleep with him. 
but Mary still refuses. The man says, All right, if you don't want to, I can't make you. But you are a nice girl, and I do fancy you. But on her way out of the bar, the airman catches up with her. He grabs her torch and pulls Mary into a dark doorway and begins to kiss and grope her. As she pushes him away, he wraps his hands tightly around her neck. Mary tries to fight back, but he keeps squeezing until she finally passes out and falls to the ground. An 18-year-old delivery boy called John Shine hears the commotion as he's on his way to a nearby pub, the captain's cabin, to deliver bottles. He decides to investigate and finds Mary unconscious on the ground and an airman using a torch to rummage through her handbag. Shine shouts out and the man runs off. When Mary comes to, he says he'll help her to the hospital. It's then he notices something on the ground nearby. The airman has dropped his gas mask. En route, Shine and Mary meet a police officer. Shine tells him what has happened and gives him the gas mask. On it is written an identity number, 525-987. Scotland Yard are finally closing in on the Blackout Ripper. When Scotland Yard detectives contact the Air Force, they find the gas mask is issued to an airman called Gordon Cummins, who is based at the Air Crew Receiving Center at Regent's Park for training. The staff sergeant there confirms that Cummins was not at his billets at the time of the attack on Mary Haywood. Detective Cheryl starts to gather information about the suspect. But initially, Cummins doesn't seem to fit the profile of a sadistic killer at all. Leading aircraftsman Gordon Frederick Cummins, 28 years of age, appears to be a moral, happily married man living a normal life in the RAF. His commanding officers have recommended him for promotion, and one even describes him as being a very intellectual type of airman. They're impressed with his efficiency and his ambition. On the other hand, his messmates call him the Duke or the Count due to his high-toned accent and his claims to be the illegitimate son of an unnamed member of the aristocracy. In fact, Cummins insists he is called the Honourable Gordon Cummins. He spends excessively during his nights out in London, but no one knows where the money comes from. Despite having an adoring young wife back home in a flat in Southwark, Cummins brags of his numerous sexual conquests claiming he can charm women and melt their morals. When they dig deeper, officers find that before he joined the RAF, Cummins was sacked from various jobs for poor timekeeping and his eccentric and false claims of being a member of the aristocracy. The staff sergeant organizes a meeting at the airbase where the police formally question Cummins about the attack on Mary Haywood. Cummins protests his innocence and says Haywood is mistaken. He claims another airman must have switched gas masks in an effort to frame him. But when Detective Cheryl orders a police identity parade, Mary unhesitantly identifies Cummins as the man who assaulted her. Cummins then changes his story and says he spent all night in the volunteer pub drinking whiskey and bitter with a corporal whose name he can't remember. He says the two of them took a taxi to Shaftesbury Avenue but he was very drunk and only has hazy recollections about talking to Haywood. Cummins expresses regrets and offers to pay compensation. 
One of the officers notices that the knuckles on his left hand are cut and bruised, but he claims he injured himself while performing maintenance on an aeroplane engine. The police don't believe him, and Cummins is arrested and placed on remand on a charge of grievous bodily harm. His fingerprints are taken, and he signs the form with his left hand. The strangling, the stealing from the handbag, the attack in a dark air raid shelter. The attack on Mary has strong echoes of the previous attacks. Have the police finally caught the blackout ripper? Scotland Yard detectives must now construct a case to prove that Cummins is the killer who's been terrorizing London. Initially, when confronted with photographs of the victims, Cummins insists he's never met any of them. But more witnesses come forward. They say Oatley had been approached by a young, clean-shaven and mustachioed airman outside a restaurant in Shaftesbury Avenue late in the evening prior to her murder. They describe him as having chestnut brown hair and being approximately five for eight in height. This fits Cummins to a T. Confronted with this evidence, Cummins again changes his story and says he did in fact meet Oatley, but swears she was alive and well when he left her. He also claims to have been too drunk on the evening of her death to recall the actual timing of his whereabouts or actions, adding, I had not a watch myself, and of course in the dark, one cannot see public clocks. The police are discouraged when they find that the billet passbook, which must be signed when airmen leave and arrive back at their accommodation, shows that Cummins had been back at the RAF station on the dates and times when the murders occurred. But then they see that many of the entries have been written in pencil. Is it possible they've been changed? At first, detectives meet a wall of silence about the passbook. Either the information in it is correct and Cummins as an alibi, or the men don't want to be disciplined for not keeping correct records. In the end, one of the airmen admits that they cover up for each other, lying about when their pals return to base so they don't get into trouble. With this information, Scotland Yard decides to move ahead with a search of Cummins' RAF quarters. What they find horrifies them and confirms beyond a shadow of a doubt that Gordon Cummins is the blackout ripper. Hidden in various places, detectives discover a cache of trophies from his week of carnage, a pen engraved with Doris Duarnay's initials and a cigarette case identified as Margaret Lowe's. A second cigarette case is found, a white metal one with the initials LW, which had belonged to Evelyn Oatley, alongside a photograph of her mother, a pencil and handkerchief belonging to Evelyn Hamilton are retrieved from a bin outside Cummins' room. The detectives continue their painstaking search and find a bloodstained shirt and belt stuffed into Cummins' kit bag. Mortar dust, similar to that in the shelter in which Evelyn Hamilton died, is found on his gas mask and trousers. The banknotes Cummins gave to Catherine Mulcahy are examined and Scotland Yard detectives trace the serial numbers and determine that two of the one-pound notes had been issued to Cummins in his pay packet on the 12th of February. Cheryl later writes, The strands of evidence connecting Cummins with the crime were gradually being woven into a noose. When presented with this evidence, 
Cummins claims the items had been taken from a service gas mask case I was carrying when arrested, but which was not mine. He sticks to his story that another airman is guilty and is trying to frame him. When accused of the murders, he exclaims, absurd and ridiculous. But it is the fingerprints that tie Cummins unquestionably to the crime scenes and seal his fate. Chero examines the prints taken from Cummins when he was charged with assaulting Mary Haywood. He compares them with a mirror and tin opener from Evelyn Oatley's murder. They are an exact match. Cheryl has all the evidence he needs to get a conviction. Gordon Cummins' trial begins on Monday, the 27th of April, 1942, for the murder of Evelyn Oatley. It's routine in cases that might lead to a death sentence to trial only one crime at a time. After all, a man can only be hanged once. It's as if Cummins doesn't recognize the gravity of his situation as he chats in a light-hearted manner with his lawyers and smiles and waves at his wife, Marjorie, who is convinced of his innocence. In the prosecution's opening statement, the King's counsel, Christmas Humphreys, outlines the discovery of Oatley's body, the injuries inflicted on her, and the weapons her murderer had used to perform the mutilations. The court also learns that Oatley's cigarette case was found in Cummins' quarters. But Humphreys saves the most damning evidence for last, the fingerprints. He turns to the jury and confidently states, you will hear from one of the greatest experts in the country upon fingerprints. He will tell you that there have been some half million fingerprints taken in this time and there have never been two alike. Superintendent Cheryl takes the stand and says he is prepared to publicly stake his reputation that the fingerprints he recovered at the crime scene belong to Cummins. He states that the prints taken from the tin opener found on the bed where Evelyn Oatley lay retained a clear print of the left little finger of the accused and the print on the mirror taken from the dead woman's bag was that of his left thumb. The jury are convinced and take just 35 minutes to deliberate. When a verdict of guilty is announced, Cummins shows no emotion. The judge asks if there is any legal reason or cause as to why the court should not impose the death penalty. Cummins replies simply, I am completely innocent, sir. But his words do nothing to sway the court's conviction. The judge states, A sadistic sexual murder has been committed here of a ghoulish and horrible type before unflinchingly sentencing Cummins to death by hanging. On the 25th of June, 1942, at Wandsworth Prison, Cummins is given a glass of brandy to calm his nerves. He walks to the scaffold without emotion, flanked by two warders to face the noose. His execution is conducted during a German air raid upon London. He's the only convicted murderer in British criminal history to be executed during an aerial bombardment. In a last letter to his wife, Marjorie, Cummins writes that if his appeal should fail, mors acerba, fama perpetua, stabit vecchio, memoria facti. Death is bitter, but fame is eternal. The memory of this deed shall long endure.
And no doubt, the crimes of Gordon Cummins, the Blackout Ripper, remain some of the darkest and most sadistic deeds in London's history. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential is April 1999. Jill Dander, a television presenter at the height of her fame, is brutally murdered on the doorstep of her London home. One of the UK's best-known, well-loved presenters gunned down in cold blood and in broad daylight. And her killer left no trace of the scene. Was she murdered by an obsessive stalker, jealous of her newly announced engagement? Or was her death a professional assassination? Scotland Yard faces intense public scrutiny as they begin their largest investigation since the Yorkshire Ripper. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sarah Moorhead. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Hi, listeners. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify.